This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Air Force has long had the job of providing close air support for Army and Marine Corps ground troops. It's what made the A-10 attack fighter such a beloved instrument. The F-35 is supposed to replace the A-10 in that role, but internal Air Force documents suggest the Air Force will no longer provide close air support. We get more now from the Project on Government Oversight's Dan Grazer. And Dan, I imagine this is of particular interest to you as someone who used to drive a tank. (laughs) Yes, Tom, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, this is a really important story. Close air support, the attack role, it's it's one of the most valuable combat roles that military aviation has. Has. It's an invaluable part of ground warfare. It's very difficult for us to fight wars today without adequate air support. And so it's really disappointing to see that the Air Force is, well, one, counts the close air support mission as largely secondary, and two, that they are not devoting any training resources for close air support for you know, the, the big marquee fighter plane that they've been developing now for more than 20 years. How did you find this all out? I had a source approach me with this story. It's just based on a lot of the reporting that I've done over the years about the A-10, about the close air support capability in the in the U.S. military. And so when when it was noticed that the Air Force had ignored the close air support mission for the F-35 program, you know, I, had a, I had a brave source that, that came forward to make sure the public knew what was going on. Right. So there are documents of the Air Force in which the mention of close air support of the ground are simply omitted? Correct. What I have is, uh, well, it's a couple documents, but the main one is the F-35A Ready Air Crew Training Memorandum. So it, it's, it outlines all the training requirements from headquarters Air Force that's given to the operational group commanders. It dictates how many sorties are supposed to be devoted to particular missions. And for the F-35 memo, it covers 2023 and 2024. And in that, it's kind of broken down by, you know, pilots' experience level, by their role in the squadrons, and by the component, whether they're in the active duty reserves or, or National Guard. It shows, you know, for each of those categories, how many sorties, training sorties, they're supposed to fly for particular missions. And just for one example, an inexperienced combat mission-ready pilot, so one of the gunfighter pilots in a squadron whose primary role is just to fly aircraft, you know, an active-duty, inexperienced combat mission-ready pilot, you know, is supposed to fly 216 training sorties across 2023 and 2024, and not a single one of those is a close air support requirement. And there are, when you look through the documents, you will see that there are no close air support training requirements for any pilot of any experience level uh, in any of the components of the Air Force. And close air support is a difficult mission, isn't it? Right. It's a really delicate mission. My prior experience as a tank officer in the Marine Corps, you know, where I lived and breathed combined arms, you know, we did a lot of training with artillery and, and aviation. And so there's, I've had plenty of times when I've been on the ground and, and aircraft have dropped ordnance pretty close to my position and want to make sure that when you're given that cleared hot for weapons release, that that pilot has plenty of experience in this mission. It's not something that can just be done on the fly. That's something that you have to train to. And so it's really disappointing to see that the Air Force has largely ignored close air support now. And what exactly do they say the F-35 is for? I've kind of lost track over all these years because they don't expect it to be in dogfights like in World War II, but they do expect it to suppress enemy air power in some manner. 
Right. For the F-35A, the Air Force's variant, it was sold as a direct replacement for the F-16, which largely has the, the air superiority role, and the A-10, which has the attack role and the close air support role, kind of rolled into that. You could go all the way back. I even pulled for this latest report. I pulled the original CNN story from October of 2001 when Lockheed Martin won the contract to develop the Joint Strike Fighter. And right there in it, it says that this new aircraft was supposed to be a replacement for the A-10. And then a couple years ago, there was a there was a hearing, kind of contentious hearing in the Senate Armed Services Committee, where there was some discussion that the F-35 wasn't really going to do the A-10's mission. But Dr. Michael Gilmore, who was then the Pentagon's testing director, he pulled out the operational requirements documents for the F-35 program. And it said right there, that it was an A-10 replacement. So close air support is supposed to be a part of the F-35 program, and these documents show that the Air Force is not taking that very seriously. We're speaking with Dan Grazier. He is Senior Military Fellow at the Project on Government Oversight. Now, the A-10 had a f- effective, from what I've read, but somewhat basic type of methodology for providing ground air support, and that was simply a great big gun sticking out the front end of it. And this thing had lots of ammunition, a big box of bullets in this thing, and it would fire. I think the pilot actually pushes the button to make it fire, big caliber bullets shooting out the front of it. Does the F-35 even have that capability? Is there a gun in its nose? Well, the F-35 doesn't have a gun in its nose. It's kind of on the shoulder of the aircraft, but it has a you know much lower ammunition capacity. The A-10 can fire, I forget the exact number, but it's well over 1,000. I think it's around 1,200, 30-millimeter rounds out of the big Gatling gun out of the out of the nose. And the F-35A has a shoulder mounted, uh, I think it's a 25 millimeter uh, cannon, but it only holds 181 rounds. So, you know, that's that's one pass firing the cannon, but the cannon on the F-35A doesn't even work properly. So that's been a part of the testing reports for years now, is that the the gun on the F-35A is inaccurate. So if I was still on the ground and somebody told me that an F-35A was going to make a gun pass, you know, across my position, I, I wouldn't feel very comfortable with that. So I would feel much more comfortable with a highly accurate A-10 flowed by a pilot who specializes in that mission. Well, just moving this up a level, is there some doctrinal change at the... Air Combat Operations Center that says this is something we're not going to do? I mean, is Congress required to decide whether the Air Force can simply abandon, apparently, a mission that it's had for many years? Well, so this is much more of an executive thing. So uh, going all the way back through history, you know, the Air Force became independent in the fall of 1947. And then in the early spring of 1948, the first Secretary of Defense gathered all the service chiefs down in Key West to iron out specifics about roles and missions, about which which service was going to handle what mission. And so going all the way back to early 1948, uh, it was was decided that the Air Force was going to provide that close combat support for the Army. That agreement was signed by President Truman. So... Now, this is an executive order going all the way back to 1948 that the Air Force is supposed to provide close air support. There's been no big doctrinal change since then. That's always been always been a part of it. So this is just an internal decision that the Air Force made, and it's unclear 
who, if anybody gave them authorization for that. I put in questions to the Air Force. I got kind of a watered-down response from them. I put in a, a request to the Army and to the Office of Secretary of Defense just to get their take on this development. And uh, I haven't heard anything back from the Army or the Secretary of Defense about it. So it's unclear if anybody gave Air Force leaders permission to make this change. Interesting. Well, if it gets out now, and now it will be getting out, we'll see what happens. I imagine probably the Hill might respond. Well, I would hope so. The Hill will definitely be made aware of this because I I spend plenty of time talking to staffers on Capitol Hill, bringing their attention to matters like this. And I can assure you that this is something that we're going to be talking about a lot with people on, on Capitol Hill, particularly as the Air Force is widely expected to approach Congress for the next National Defense Authorization Cycle, seeking permission to retire the rest of the A-10 fleet. So this is a hugely important development to that. And really, you know, this F-35 memo, training memo, really shows the value of the A-10, the importance of having a dedicated attack program that is really unsuited for a lot of other roles. Like it's created this cadre of close air support specialists. Uh, and then if the A-10 program goes away, that's going to vanish very quickly. And as this memo shows, you know, the Air Force is not going, uh, you know, it doesn't appear really willing to devote a lot of training resources for their multi-role aircraft, you know, to train at this mission. Dan Grazier is Senior Military Fellow with the Project on Government Oversight. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thank you for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Support yourself with the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get-involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics, I, um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in d- direct care. And, and I will say and on, a, obviously, we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know I'll take a look at it and see, see you know throw send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, 
getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has a has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And 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 you think of I I you know so often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he he, he faces everything with optimism and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy and you should you should you know send your this child away. Don't don't you know and kind of forget about them. Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever and and you know that you know just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. uh, We get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded yeah. everyone is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot but you go to special olympics and everyone's involved everyone's welcome everyone's equal and I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I I, I can't imagine that won't help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get? How can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved, uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age. It's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think when you, when you go back to the 
founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.